and welcome to Screen Looking, a podcast where close friends take a closer look at their favorite video games. I'm your host, Andrew Kuhar, and by the time you're listening to this, we are officially a year into the show, now in the double digits with our 10th episode. To mark the occasion, we're taking a look at Japanese game developer and publisher from software, made famous for their critical and cult hits, including Dark Souls, Bloodborne, and most recently, Sekiro Shadows Die Twice, the latter of which will be our primary focus in the back half of this episode. I'm fortunate to have with me two people that are much more knowledgeable about From Software's games than I am. And first and foremost, I'd like to welcome back newly knighted co-host of the show, dear friend and Bloodborne Bannerman, Alex Koval. Hello, everybody. It's gourd to be here this evening. Oh and God. if you don't understand that pun, you will become very familiar with it throughout this episode. So I'm not gonna. I'm not on a scale, on a carp scale, of pot noble to ascending carp. How excited are you for today's episode? Um, I have ascended. I have ascended so high that I have left the stream and am now in the divine realm. <laughs> very good, very good. There's gonna be a lot of, definitely a lot of carp puns, a lot of carp talk. I don't even know if we're gonna be able to have time to explain that. We'll have to have a whole episode just for the uh, the ascending carp. So look out for that next time. Yeah, great to have you back. Um, you're kind of the reason I think we're doing this one because you uh, were just had glowing reviews of Bloodborne and uh, it kind of encouraged me to take a look at, at this one. But uh, thankfully, we also have a special guest to turn to for all of the above. Um, if you've heard any of our past few episodes, including this one, then you've most certainly already heard from them in the form of their music. And that is none other than Mono Memory, synthwave producer and artist from Edinburgh. So we are super glad to have you on, and I uh, just can't thank you enough for the generous permission to use a lot of your music in our episodes lately. They've given it a lot of extra secret sauce and uh, a lot of uh, <laughs> uniqueness. And yeah, we appreciate your support. It's been fun talking to you since we uh, connected out over that. Thanks a lot for having me on, guys. Um look forward to discussing FromSoft further. Yeah, and, for uh, sure. I don't have any I don't have any puns lined up, uh, I'm afraid, so <laughs> bear with me. Yeah. When in doubt, always go for the carp or the gourd. It's one thing I've learned. For the gourd. <laughs> yeah, go for the gourd. Cool. Go um, for the gourd. Yeah, so, you know, you've been doing this, this project, uh, doing these synthwave covers, uh, remixes of famous songs from video games, famous scores. Uh, and doing them in your own style. Uh, and then word on the street right now is that you actually have a pretty good problem on your hands, which is that you just put a mixtape out of all the remix save rune themes from the Resident Evil series. Of course, one of those we featured pretty heavily in our Resident Evil miniseries. And it sounds like those mixtapes are selling out pretty quickly. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, I first kind of started with the covers maybe early 2017. Uh, I only had completed one for Resident Evil 2, the Resident Evil, the, the one you used actually, uh, mm -hmm. the Save Room from 2. I wasn't too focused on that. I was I was more into kind of doing original stuff. This year I've decided to kind of pick it back up and really work on the kind of YouTube side of things and get into more of a, a rhythm, doing weekly covers and stuff for different games. Um, so it's kind of got to this point now where yeah, I covered most of the, the save room themes in the games and put the idea out there for a physical release and uh, most people are on board with it. Yeah, so we've done well with the sales so far. Yeah. I didn't even know that was a 
I, I did not know that. And now I'm going to have to procure a copy of this myself mm -hmm. as a lifelong Resident Evil fan. <laughs> I've heard your renditions of the save room musics for, I think, the first and second game. And they were just excellent. And that's coming from, like, the most nerdy RE fan you could ever possibly <laughs> imagine. So I will, uh, I'll have to touch base with you after the show and get see, if, see how I can get a copy here. Yeah, no, that'd be great. Um, I've been speaking to the label again, and um, I think they're set on at least doing maybe not um, 40 again, mm -hmm. but maybe like 20, 10 or 20. Yeah, whatever uh, whatever you end up uh, yeah. getting put out, I'll uh, I'll buy it at a high price. Oh, my God. <laughs> not this guy I'd again. I'd appreciate that. <laughs> Resident <laughs> Evil 4 pun. This is the second of many to come. Yeah. So if Alex wanted to get this mono... We're going to call you Mono for short throughout this episode so people know who we're talking to. Um, where would Alex right. need to go to find this? Uh, it will be available on uh, Time Slave Recordings. So that's the label that have been helping me out. They're based in the UK. So they've taken care of all of the physical printing and stuff of the tapes. Um, Is Bandcamp the best place to, to look for them online? That's, that's the only place you can actually check out and get a tape but yeah as i said i'm not entirely sure when that third run's gonna be yeah so we will throw that into the show notes so people have a direct link if they want to check it out uh, the good thing about Bandcamp is you can listen to all the music streaming before you buy it but if you like what you've heard so far from uh, the samples we've included from mono on the show you're definitely bound to like the entire collection so yeah check it out keep an eye out for it don't wait because it'll probably sell out before long so Again, just can't express how how uh, appreciative we are of getting to use that stuff. It's it's very cool. I think it fits the show very well. Um, and yeah, happy to have you on here for this. Yeah, no, thanks a lot. And uh, it's no problem. Feel free to use uh, any of my music uh, moving forward. It's, it's no problem. I'm definitely going to do that. <laughs> great. Um, yeah, we'll throw some, uh, throw some pounds your way while we do that. Maybe some sun as well. Um, so yeah, so well, well, I did get, I did cover Sekiro recently as well, fairly recently. Oh, so. interesting. Yeah, very convenient. Yeah, <laughs> maybe the listener will have already heard that by the time this is live. Um, so yeah, so getting back into that, we are going to talk about From Software a little bit in this front half, and we're going to talk about them through the lens of their three most recent franchises, which again are Dark Souls, Bloodborne, and Sekiro. Uh, the latter of which just released this past March. So what we want to do here is basically find some common denominators, distinctions between all of them, and just try and put our finger on what, what makes all these games so special to so many people, especially why we endure them, because they are known for their difficulty, and just kind of try to land on what From Software's philosophy is around game design and, and narrative and all that. Um, so I was a pretty huge From Software skeptic until Sekiro, what got my attention about it was just how it reminded me of Tenchu. Um, I'll return to that topic maybe later, but that was a game that my brothers and I grew up playing, ironically, from software now owns the rights to publish that game. Um, but to my surprise, after um, after you and I had been in touch a little more mono, I noticed that you were kind of just subtweeting about the game a lot and expressing your enthusiasm for it. You're sharing some, some gifts of it right away uh, of your playthrough. And so it came to my attention that you're very versed in these games. Alex, you were just totally in love with Bloodborne, and I felt like 
the video game gods were telling me to look at from software's games um so yeah as, as a relative rookie to all this i'm hoping to learn a lot here myself generally speaking what is it about their games that has maintained such an appeal over the years that someone like me has been ignoring them and mono if you want to start feel free well yeah actually well dark souls one um it was kind of february 2013 so the game came out september 2011 and the first thing that kind of struck me was just the kind of old schoolness of it it was just very yeah and not holding your hand at all just yeah no no map no um pointers telling you where to go or anything like that and just just the, the overall kind of difficulty and ambiguity of the beginning sequence as well it's kind of a tutorial for me like focusing more on like mechanical stuff something pertinent across all the games is like the animation fluidity I mean, that was something that kind of grabbed me from the get-go it's just like there's a real kind of the weightiness of the combat yeah just just the the overall picture and, and fluidity being presented to you with within the combat i just think's yeah, there there was a kind of rec- there's a recovery there's proper recovery to a lot of the animation. So you swing a massive sword, and then he'll kind of up and like over his shoulder if you're two handing uh-huh. like a Y hander, <laughs> which yeah. is a two hander. Yeah, yeah, in yeah. German, you know yeah. what I mean? Big massive sword. Lots of attention to detail. With uh, I, I'm not sure what you guys have. I mean, have you played Dark Souls one at all? Or uh, I've played just um, a little bit of it. Um, maybe like an hour or two of it. Um, and I don't believe Andy's played any of it. Nope. Haven't played any of it. Haven't played any of Bloodborne. I've seen Alex play a couple of hours of Bloodborne. That's it. I'm familiar with some of the mechanics in Dark Souls, or maybe it's actually Demon Souls I'm thinking of, but very much my, my exposure is limited to Sekiro. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the kind of old school RPG-ness of it. I mean, under my radar, um, completely really enjoyed it, but... It was kind of, uh, yeah, I remember seeing kind of um, a lot of press on Demon Souls and Dark Souls over the years, but but for some reason I just didn't pick it up. Over the Christmas period of 2012, that's when I got back from that trip, yeah, early 2013, I just decided to look back. It was just so engrossing to play that kind of game. There hadn't really been anything like it for me. I mean, I've always been into RPGs since... Fantasy Seven, really, um, in the JRPG front, but and this is miles different, obviously. But just that mm-hmm. dark fantasy world, um, the game, the main menu theme, very reminiscent of Resident Evil, as well. In what way did you feel like it was reminding you of RE? Just uh, it was very reminiscent of this uh, the save room music to me, the kind of haunting harp away, and it was just the the, the melodic kind of structure. I guess um, mm-hmm. it's quite similar. Uh, to Resident Evil and just quite calming and a bit kind of eerie at the same time. Mm-hmm. You mentioned too there's the the lack of tutorials um, being a big part of of the uniqueness of these games. I think that games more and more, especially since maybe the last generation of consoles have gotten more fixated on um, really pushing the narrative cinematic element, um, really being direct with the player, um, masking tutorials, kind of you know tutorials are almost kind of sexy now. they're like the whole prologue of the game just happens to teach you all the mechanics you need to know. Um, but it seems like From Software is just not interested in that with their games across the board. They really want you to experiment and explore and make mistakes. And is that, would you would you guys both agree with that? Yeah, I definitely would agree. Um, it's, it's interesting that Mono mentioned like not kind of 
when it, when uh, Demon Souls, Dark Souls first came out, like not really hearing about it because I feel the same way. Like I remember, you know, playing Skyrim at the time and like kind of hearing like whispers of this game, Dark Souls. And, you know, when Demon Souls first came out, um, it apparently only sold around 20,000 copies in the week of its release, which is a lot fewer than they had thought. And um, eventually, like over time, people like kind of word of mouth got out that it was uh, that it's sort of like complex armor and weapon systems and old school RPG elements created this sort of like hyper immersive and strategic um, and very personalized gaming experience. And like over time, people just kind of began to like trickle in towards it and like you know, there would be players leaving messages in game for other players that were less experienced. And, um, you oh, know, yeah. in a few months, yeah. like it had quite, it had quite more than quadrupled its sales. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of that has to do with the stuff that we're kind of talking about where, you know, the gameplay is incredibly demanding and it catches you off guard. Um, it kind of reminds me of like, you know, Re you know, we mentioned Resident Evil. I think it definitely reminds me of that where, it's just, you know, unforgiving. I mean, in the original Resident Evil, if you get bit, like, I think two times or three times with Jill, you're a goner. And, like, that, you know, that's very easy to do with Resident Evil's clunky control schemes. Um, you know, I think, obviously, Demon's Souls and Dark Souls has a lot more immersive combat uh, and much more mm -hmm. skill-based combat. But, um, you know, I think that sort of, like, unwillingness to give the player a... Uh, tutorial that's forgiving and just sort of throws them into this vague uh, world with undefined antagonists and rules and reasons for things um, that I think makes it, you know, alluring. It's mysterious. It kind of captures your attention. Mm -hmm. And in that way, I think it throws back to a lot of, um, you know, old school video games. Uh, I think particularly of PC games as well. Um, you know, you and I have played Grim Fandango like a couple years back and I remember being so frustrated with that game originally because it just doesn't tell you at all what the rules or limitations are you just kind of have to figure everything out as you go but um it's it's that sort of gameplay that I think is able to suck in new audience if we had to ascribe any one genre that people are familiar with to all these games is action adventure the most accurate I don't know it's kind of a mix between like action adventure survival horror and um platforming like an rpg kind of. rpg an, really, an rpg yeah, yeah. it's yeah. like it's yeah it's it's hard to define really it doesn't really play by any any rules but i would i would say for the Souls series i would say action rpg would more accurately so you think the genre maybe I mean, moves with each franchise then i mean if you're if you're talking about you know, Demon Souls up to Sekiro, then definitely, obviously. But I mean, focusing on the Souls games, it's, it's obviously heavy on the RPG elements. Um, survival horror thing, more I got that vibe more of the Dark Souls one and and Demon Souls. That um, my experience with Demon Souls, yeah, I've not completed the game fully, so I'll admit that now. <laughs> it's so hard <laughs> yeah absolutely. especially going back to after like dark souls as well um wow this yeah. is this is like dark souls is tough this is really really tough um but from what i did play of demon souls yeah there's that real horror element the tower of uh, latria kind of frightening yeah. environment to go through it really conveys that 
kind of survival horror mm-hmm. kind of vibe and and the, the mechanic of retrieving your resources you know it's a risk reward element of um retrieving your uh souls from bloodstains and your, and your resources so what is that exactly i'm not familiar with that the currency in dark souls is souls oh okay you yeah you use souls to level up increase your stats and then buying items and weapons they, they all use souls so the the risk reward element um re- retrieving your bloodstain so so when you die the last uh, bonfire that you rested at mm-hmm. and then you have to you you're, you're given one chance to get back to your bloodstain but if you die on the way then you you lose it yeah just like that kind of risk i hadn't really seen anything like that mm-hmm. um in a game before kind of on the fly decision making yeah so is that it seems like that's a little element that they preserved in Sekiro like it seems like there's still that whole oh you could lose your experience you could lose your sen maybe it does it is it perhaps not quite as punishing as it was in Dark Souls is that like part of the like a really huge core part of the gameplay while you're fighting as detrimental as as, you know how much you're carrying I guess um You've just beaten a boss, and you, you've you've amassed like twenty thousand souls. Push forward and make it to the next bonfire, so I can cash in these souls. Or if you've or if you've dropped them, it's like, am I going to try and get back to it or not, or just leave it? But it's it's really that um, risk reward element of certainly after big boss battles and things, which were cool because you weren't always that that kind of got easier, user friendly as the games went on. Like be presented with like a bonfire straight after bosses. Yeah. The checkpoints get get a little more forgiving as the series series go on. I was going to bring that up in the user friendliness of Sekiro as yeah. well, like the idle placement and the runbacks to bosses. Yeah. But yeah, I can come on to that. So between how difficult these games are and between being hard to pin down their genre, um, I think this, this ties in pretty nicely to something you brought up the last time we talked, Mono, which is how these games ex- exactly came to western audiences um just how they happen to find their way how they happen to find even a lot as large of an audience as they have now you know Sekiro has already sold a couple million copies last time i checked so that's um it's pretty pretty impressive uh by video game standards for sure in terms of sales so they have that that audience but you know obviously it started very small like you mentioned alex um with demon souls and with all these things fighting almost against it and what a lot of audiences are, are show interest in today with video games. Um, like what, you know, what brought it over here? What, what made it come to Western audiences and what made it stick for people aside from maybe that word of mouth, uh, appeal that it had because of its mystery, uh, because of its mystique. Yeah. So I've, I've got notes on the kind of, um, the dates and things tied to demon souls and, and, the, and its uh, release structure. Cause it's, very atypical. It was first released around February 2009 as a PSV exclusive, obviously, and published by Sony. Initial scores in Japan via uh, Famitsu was like 29 out of 40 and, and quite mediocre sales as well. But it wasn't until by Active Gaming Media for the Chinese market, uh, which was fully localized in English and region free. Um, and this came out around February 26th. An interest kind of sparked and, and grew from there um, on the on the import side of things. And you know about the localization as well as most of the uh, voice cast were Scottish, believe it or not, <laughs> as well as something I, I picked up. Um, wow, that's cool. I had no idea. 
you, if you, if you get around to checking it out fully, yeah, a lot of the NPCs have. Well, there's English and there's it's mostly yeah, just English, Scottish, UK, Irish, and stuff as well. So quite, quite a mix. But um, I guess it was just mostly word of mouth that, as I said, led to the import demand and uh, some people paying up to like seventy quid on eBay or I don't know, like equivalent ninety dollars or whatever, just to get their hands on it. So it's that kind of mis- mystique. It's like the lack of copies or the lack of resources to mm-hmm. get your hands on it. Wasn't there like a YouTuber or someone who like kind of drove people to this game a little bit? Yeah, um, it's hard to source the original videos because the uh, the YouTuber in question, uh, who goes by the name of Epic Name Bro, uh, these days, um, but his original channel was something else. Um, and his first video under the moniker Epic Name Bro, it's kind of like a like a recap video almost almost like a review but there's nothing prior to that so i believe he was one of the the dudes that uh put out early videos because he was living in japan at the time he was putting out content and that mystery to western audiences Mm -hmm. yeah it seems like it's definitely like the raw grassroots community behind these games that yeah that's made them still successful today that's really cool that's interesting like some of the takeaways from that, I mean, you have this kind of cult following or interest brewing away over this kind of eight-month window. I think a lot of it is timing as well. I just seem to at a time where this this approach to game design and difficulty was, you know, quite a refreshing change of pace. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly to those in the in the West that had heard of it and picked it up and imported it. But yeah, it wasn't really until that North American release, October two thousand nine, that really on the map so to speak i was um met with you know a lot of critical acclaim for like 89 out of 100 there's a lot of high praise for the challenging combat deep rpg mechanics and play styles um and reviewers ig ign summed it up quite nicely by saying like players who can remember the good old days when games taught through encouraging piece of negative reinforcement and a heavy price for not playing it carefully should scoot this up it's kind of fitting that the, the that this game series has a similar arc to a character playing the game. Like at first it came in and it was failing pretty hard. <laughs> and then like slowly <laughs> over time it sold better and better and now it's like just a you know, an an awesome series that has everybody's, you know, reverence and it's just mm-hmm. kind of funny. It like went from, you know, fledgling Shinobi to like Shinobi Master. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, completely. In what ways was Bloodborne, because it's a new franchise, signals a lot of new things, new mechanics, new setting, new look and feel. How did Bloodborne separate itself from what people were used to expecting from the Dark Souls franchise? Because, you know, it received numerous Game of the Year nominations the year it came out in 2015. Uh, It went up against The Witcher 3, so it kind of lost out to that for most of the accolades, but... Pretty much across the board, it came in second place. Uh, even places like Polygon gave it number two for the year. It seemed like it was just a really huge critical hit um, in the similar way that maybe Dark Souls was, and it was just building on that momentum. So it seemed like it was a point of refinement for the for the studio. One of the main things was kind of shields and blocking are out and aggression and quick dodging in. Uh, um, obviously, Dark Souls, a large part of that was a kind of tactical combat um hiding behind a shield and more and more methodical in a sense bloodborne removed blocking altogether one of the main things so it's much more fast-paced streamlining in terms of the weaponry 
so they, they brought in trick weapons um, and Bloodborne focusing on application and form rather than having kind of pointless reskinned weapons, which you could argue uh, the Soul series suffered from a little bit. Like 20 different short swords, but they, they all had the same animation, did the same thing. Mm. You know, tricked them out or had um, put them into their alternative form. So that was kind of cool. So there was like a little bit of a fashion element to the game, it seems, with how you can deck your character out and customize them visually as well as uh, mechanically. Yeah, I mean, the fashion side of things was more apparent in Bloodborne because there wasn't as much stats and things, and there wasn't any there wasn't any like, encumbrance um, burden. So in, in Dark Souls 1, you have a number or percentage of your equip burden, so you could have a really fast roll, a medium roll, or if you were stacked up with armor, you, you'd have like a fat roll. Um, <laughs> I have a couple fat rolls. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what are those? I don't know. I don't know what that is. <laughs> no, I just mean like, you know, I've been eating a lot of ice cream. Oh, I thought, that was like an, I thought that was like an item in the game or something. I was like, that sounds like that. Uh, you had more considerations to make in, in, in Dark Souls 1. You know, am I going to like be armorless, but really fast? You know, tank up and have... Havel's armor on, but roll really slowly. But in, in Bloodborne, that didn't matter as much. There were there were stats, but um, they were largely irrelevant. It, it was kind of cool in a way. You could just like yeah, look exactly how you want without worrying about that. Um, I don't know what you think um, about the world state changes as well. Maybe you could. Um... Yeah, Alex, why don't you? Um, you seem. Uh, and I'm trying to find words to describe how much you love Bloodborne, but I know you love it so much, but you, you've really chewed oh, yeah, into the world and the environment of Bloodborne. That's one of the things I think you took away most from it. <sighs> okay, so I'll try to I'll try to cover all of this because Bloodborne is very near and dear to my heart and I don't want to undersell it in any way. But uh, the general gist is that you come to this foreign land, you know, you, with some illness and you've heard that there is a way that members of this healing church in this land have this way to cure all, any illness. So you sign a contract that makes you a hunter of beasts and you take a blood transfusion, which heals you of your illness, but then you are obligated by contract to go out and hunt these humans basically that are turning into sort of beasts or werewolf kind of things. You know, it starts off that way, but it kind of gets dialed up to 11 and you know right when you think you have any sort of handle on what's going on it just busts the game busts wide open um but it takes place in this sort of uh elizabethan gothic gothic elizabethan environment um this sprawling city called yarnum um that has just layers and layers of lore apparent in the uh surrounding area just you know i think one thing that FromSoft is incredible at doing is imbuing the environments with a sense of uh, descriptive power like they're you know uh, in Bloodborne you will see people in various stages of transformation um, and you will see like the, the the townspeople's fear of that transformation you so you'll see like you know sort of crucified half transformed humans on these poles and um, you know in other places you'll see like uh, sort of ashen corpses uh that have you know from people that have suffered from this disease called ashen blood um you know they do a really good job of just you know painting the environment with with the lore as opposed to just telling you uh exposition via you know whether it's cutscenes or uh documents or dialogue 
Which I think is really interesting because, you know, it leads it leads you to have to explore the world and discover, you know, what exactly the world is doing, what exactly it's trying to tell you. What Mono was saying about how it differs from Dark Souls, in my experience, you know, there is that focus on quick and brutal combat based around dodging instead of blocking and parrying instead of you know, sort of riposting or counterattacking. So you have to time your attacks and your dodges almost expertly. Um, there's no sort of hiding behind a, a tower shield or anything like that. Yeah, the game also has, you know, obvious Lovecraftian leanings. If anybody's familiar with the works of H.P. Lovecraft at this point, I feel like most people probably have heard his name and are familiar with Cthulhu. But the game definitely utilizes his i guess lore in very specific ways without you know ex explicitly stating it by name but um you know there's not there's there's so much i could say about the game but i think that i could sum it up in this one story um which is i was in an area and i was exploring as you should often do in these games because they reward you so expertly for exploring and i found a tunnel that led under like an old house um that led me to a underground acid pool with these giants in it and i was like this is pretty cool but let's see where this is going to lead me so i found a ladder and that ladder took me to the very beginning this was about three-fourths of the way through the game so i found this ladder and i climbed it and i came up at the very beginning of the game like the very first room that you started and i was like wow that was an incredible loop and i can't believe they managed to pull that off in a way that felt so real and welcomed. So I wound up, I wound up in the very first area that I was that I started the game in and I found an NPC that I had spoken with early on in the game and in that location I got a document, a summons, and I didn't know what it really did or what it was for. Um I just kind of picked it up and I was going through my, the game and exploring other areas you know optional areas that i had just stumbled upon that were totally unnecessary for the progression of the game and i came to this crossroads and sure enough because i had the summons i initiated a cutscene, and only because i had that summons it took me to a totally optional place that was probably the coolest place in the entire game which was a place called forgotten castle canehurst which is this huge rock castle covered in snow and haunted with ghosts and it feels so isolated and haunting and terrifying you know there's gargoyles on the rooftops and there's ghosts with like daggers coming at you and there's a really cool boss fight that takes place on the roof it's just from top to bottom it was such a like a tight focused experience and it was entirely missable and entirely passable and I think that that's, you know, something, but it, but it also made perfect sense and fleshed out the lore and, and added definition to places that were, to, to parts of the lore that were undefined. Items all of a sudden had so much more meaning to them. And my, this, you know, my character's journey had so much more depth to it. And, um, you know, I think that's why these games are so appealing. And that's why, you know, I fell in love with Bloodborne was just that it rewards you for all of the things you should be doing as a gamer. A lot of the modern games, I think, will push you in that direction and will reward you, but they reward you for ultimately what amounts to nothing. It feels very hollow because it's 
not really work that's put in by the player or it's not really difficult or challenging. It's sort of like everybody gets a trophy. But in in these games, I feel like hmm. any trophy you get, you've earned. Yeah, and I and think that, if that trophy yeah. can have a uh, beautiful Lovecraftian ooze dripping on it, I'm, I'm all for it. <laughs> yeah, I think that speaks a lot to um, what you were both saying earlier, just about how this game gives everyone that very personal. It makes it feel like their experience in this game. It's like these games have such branching paths that almost everyone can have a very different experience with what you know could could be described as like a linear game, where it's got a very like it's, they're not open world per se. Um, so that's, that's really fascinating. And thanks for that, Alex. That was, that was awesome. I think that I really, that really resonated with me in how, um, a lot of my experiences with Sekiro and I, the way a lot of the adventures I shared with you that I jump off Twitch and say, oh, this really crazy thing happened. That seems like it only happened to me. Um, how much (laughs) of that sense of adventure is also apparent in, in Dark Souls and like the finding the documents, the mysteries, the, the, the characters you talk to who are inhabiting this world is is dark souls a little more isolating or does it have its own brand of that and like is it how much is bloodborne having these things in evolution for the uh the studio or were those things apparent as well in the previous games yeah i mean the the foundations uh were set really with demon souls that that has stayed consistent throughout um all the souls or soulsborne games quite ambiguous um storylines with characters that you'll come across that that's that's always always kind of been a thing um yeah yeah memorable memorable characters and abstract uh, abstract sorry quest lines um has always been there where it's it's very convoluted in terms of the order and 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 where they show up so yeah very much like Sekiro, which you will come on to but actually un- unlocking these these quest lines can be quite difficult it seems like it's sort of a medieval setting and it always looks like you're on a bridge going to a castle or something and all the screenshots I've seen, but compared to the sprawling city of Yarnum and all that, like where is, where exactly do you, which, how would you describe Dark Souls setting in, in contrast? Yeah, so it's like set in the kind of crumbling world or uh, of uh, Lordran, a world of the, of the gods pretty much. Um, yeah, very... Uh, medieval um mm-hmm. setting so quite a, quite a bit different from the lovecraftian styles um presented in bloodborne one of the reasons why bloodborne was such a success you know it's, it was a completely new environment and aesthetic and then some of these other aspects of the story which i won't spoil for those that haven't played it but um interesting mm-hmm. there's some quite dark stuff in bloodborne <laughs> in the lore what you know, once you kind of read between the lines and get into it woven into that and 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 the uh item descriptions the world lore yeah you know one of the first reactions uh alex that you had when you started watching me play Sekiro for the first time and of course being the first one of their games i'm playing it's like this is all new to me i'm sure all their games are like this one of one of the things that seemed to really stand out to you is wow this game is so much more user-friendly and very much very story forward it seemed like very much uh, it was spinning a very clear plot and that seemed like a huge difference. So if all these games are have a lot of that world building consistent through the documents, the characters, all these optional side quests. So given how many things these games have in common, um, what is it about the narrative so far in, in Sekiro that feels different 
Um, yeah, so I think it's it's definitely much much more explicit um, from the get go. It's a, even though there's there's ambiguity there from the get go. I think you have a much more like a much clearer idea of who your character is, what their purpose is, um, kind of where they're generally going in the story, and you know your character can actually speak, which is a big. <laughs> big difference from the previous oh, wow. games. They couldn't Yeah, they don't even speak in the other uh as far as I I don't know Dark Souls um I'd imagine they probably don't, but I know in Bloodborne like you don't talk at all. Um I mean you can get option you get prompts, but your character doesn't have like an actual voice um which is kind of interesting. So, you know, already from the get-go I think that, you know, you're a little bit more meant to sympathize and empathize with Wolf than your hunter i'm not really sure like i don't know if giving your you know being able to create a character and having that character not have a voice if that makes the player character more inclined to associate with that character or not you know i I kind of felt pretty strongly for my hunter by the end of bloodborne but in terms of the storyline in sekiro like i do i i will admit that i really do appreciate the cutscenes and the more cinematic approach to storytelling um you know, I think the Final Fantasy series is definitely, and Resident Evil uh, has kind of cultivated a respect for that in me. Um, I've always enjoyed games with strong narrative. Um, I think you do lose a little bit of the mystery and a little bit of the, mm. I don't want to say suspense, but maybe like you have a general idea where things are going. I had to go to the Sunken Valley and basically Kuro explicitly tells you like, Hey, you have to go get this thing. And then you have to go through the sunken Valley. Whereas like in bloodborne, I mean, I would literally just find a place and be like, Oh, this must be where I'd have to go. And then like only later would I find out that it was a totally optional area that I didn't even have to go through. You know, I think there's uh, a big difference there where, you know, in Sekiro, the, the dialogue and the narrative is sort of driving the direction for the character and anything, anything you happen to come across is sort of on your own free will. Um, there's definitely more of a gentle helping hand guiding you. I do think that the ending of Sekiro was more poignant insofar as, you know, the characters that were involved with it were definitely more fleshed out. And so and, I, and so were the relationships. So I think mm. the endings had more of a punch and more of an emotional weight to them than Bloodborne. If one was not, if one was to, not really study up on Bloodborne and the lore and read the item descriptions, I feel like the endings would not make much sense at all to the average player. But if, you know, you were to do all of the above, then the endings of Bloodborne will be, will have lasting impressions. I I know after I beat it and after I saw all three endings, I was, I definitely could not fall asleep. (laughs) They were just like, they really stuck with me and made me think about things. So, Mm. Uh, Mono, do you have any, any thoughts on all that as well? In addition, um, yeah, I think I think it's mostly down to the cutscenes, the addition of cutscenes. But in, in saying that, Bloodborne was really the first to introduce more cutscenes. I would say as well. I mean, you do get you do get cutscenes before certain bosses that have a kind of narrative backbone as well. It's a lot more explicit and direct in Sekiro, and and you have this kind of dialogue between yourself and Kuro. Yeah, in terms of where to go next a lot of the time and yeah i mean there's additional areas and stuff you, you can stumble up upon but um oh going back to dark souls um there wasn't really a hell of a lot of that at all it was just dialogue with um characters you'd come across mm. very little in the way of um 
Um, if, if any, I don't think there's any actually. There's a very cool cutscene be- before quite an iconic boss battle in An Orlando. A cool cutscene, but it's not narrative really. Right. Yeah, it's just setting the fight up, like to be all epic and stuff, because you've you've just got to this crazy place. Yeah, but to build like emotional um, connections with the NPCs outright is, yeah. is pretty new, new for them. So yeah, before we get into other you know other aspects of Sekiro, like the combat, um, other differences, and and what all of our takeaways have been with that game, as we spend the rest of the episode on that, in Sekiro, uh, you basically play as Sekiro, which is uh, means one armed wolf. Uh, you play as an orphaned, eventually one-armed shinobi. Uh, you use that um, that weakness actually to uh, become a strength. You get a prosthetic arm outfitted with all kinds of shinobi tools, and uh, you're using your skills and this tool to essentially get back to a prince who you were assigned to protect uh, earlier in your life. All of this takes place in a fictionalized 16th century Japan, uh, and part of Japan that uh, is an oppressed land called Ashina. And uh, the Ashina army is essentially seeking a means to defend itself better, come into greater power, and the prince that you're trying to protect is actually uh, the source of that power, which is resurrection. That has a huge uh, amount of implications for the story as well as the gameplay. Um, at some point, you get this power granted to you, the player. So the entire act of dying, coming back to life... Uh, is a big part of it, as well as at the center of it all is incredibly intricate swordplay. There's a lot of mystical elements throughout the land. Um, as part of the experience, as you traverse the lands, you go through forests, castles, villages, uh, and so forth. It's, it seems like to me might be one of the closest to more of an open world style because you kind of get to a hub and you you can kind of freely choose where you want to go at some point in the game. It really opens up in the middle of it all. So as you adventure through the world, you uncover a lot of huge secrets, uh, secret forms of combat. Um, you start to uncover the mystery of how the resurrection, power of resurrection reached Japan um, and how it's sort of infested and corrupted or even given life to parts of the land and its people. There's been new religions started around it, new sciences. Um, it's impacted the military, obviously the natural order of things. And uh, basically everyone you encounter. So um, that's basically the gist, I think, for Sekido, unless Alex and Mono, you want to add anything else to, you know, how you would describe the game? That was pretty spot on. Sweet. Yeah, I don't think I can really <laughs> add much to that, no. Cool. Yeah. Um, so going off of all that, uh, the other biggest difference for this game, and it also seems pretty user-friendly from, like, an interface standpoint a gameplay standpoint. Um, what were some of the things that stood out to both of you at first as like this game is really trying to to give you the skills you need to have up front? Uh, it seems to use that prologue area where you wake up in the well and are trying to find the prince um, to teach you everything. And it, it seemed pretty natural to me. It felt like this is great. This is paced super well. Um, I'm understanding pretty much everything I have to do. Uh, it's playing on a lot of traditional stealth mechanics, traversal mechanics, platforming, like you mentioned, Alex. Um, but it seemed like it was pretty shocking to you when you first saw it. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was crazy to see when you would do something and a little tutorial window would pop up and kind of tell you, oh, this is what posture is and this is how you use it and this is how it works. And, or like, you know, this is how you would use Makiri counter or this is how you would, uh, block or, or deflect or something like that. Just that alone was so baffling to me because in Bloodborne, they don't give you any of that at all. <laughs> I mean, I still 
have to look up occasionally what the hell like arcane or um like blood stats do in bloodborne because there's no like descriptors really uh in the game and you know there's so many like things that just are not told to you that every stat has a soft cap and you know once once you go past that soft cap your stats get lower um you know sekiro doesn't really do that at all i mean basically everything is everything is pretty much spelled out um which i think makes the game ultimately more user-friendly and with a arsenal as complex as uh you know your shinobi arsenal is in that game i think that's for the i think that was a smart choice in bloodborne really you have a weapon and a gun and stats associated with your character so it's a little bit more even though that can get deep in its own way i think it's a lot more streamlined and easier to get the hang of from the ground up sekiro's combat's a lot more layered and nuanced i would argue there's actually a quote from uh, miyazaki about the difficulty in Sekiro, and he said something. Let me see if I can find it here. Uh, I'm not saying I'm not sure if saying it's more accessible is the best answer, but we have tried to make it easier for people to access every part of the Shinobi's arsenal. In a previous title, you had an area or a boss that could only be defeated by magic. That would be an issue because people are specializing in their build, and we've created this unnecessary wall for them. This way of building the game, it gives us greater freedom and gives the player greater freedom to decide how they want to tackle this or mm. to encourage them to try find, to find something else and to keep adding to their arsenal and use every little bit to defeat those challenges. Mm. Um, and I think that they do a really good job of doing that. Um, you know, you do get a lot of different skills and abilities, active, passive. That creates gameplay that is very, you know, user choice driven. Um, there's a lot of options, and I think those options needed to be defined for the combat to work appropriately. Yeah, I feel like this game, even though it has all of From's games, have a lot of um, some hallmarks of the way you know game difficulty used to be. I feel like if these games came out back then, they just wouldn't come with a user manual, anyways. You know, no games yeah. come with user manuals anyway today. But I feel like they would know that's how it's meant to be. Like. You, the manual is in the game uh you just have to read everything uh i find it pretty fun right. fun to read everything that they throw at you especially in the uh in the skill trees the different uh combat arts you get the different prosthetic tools because every single one you get it just makes me feel like okay this might be the hook that that helps me latch onto what the hell is going on in this boss battle that's just wrecking me over and over i mean i I died so much in this game and I know that's part of the it's part of the course with these games but I was pretty shocked at uh how some bosses would just you know dozens and dozens of death before I uh I finally got a hang of like what I was doing wrong or I read a guide and it would tell me exactly what I might need to do and then I'd try it and it wouldn't work at all and so it kind of comes down to like a little bit of muscle memory with this game I feel like what feels convenient and intuitive um, and perhaps those tools are trying to lean into that intuition. Yeah, another interesting thing is, um, you know, in Bloodborne and Dark Souls, well, I, I would imagine, I'm pretty sure in Dark Souls, from what I remember from the character creation screen, but, you know, your character has stats that you can, when you level up, you can add points to whatever stat you want to add points to. And in Bloodborne, uh, a lot of people end up front-loading their points into vitality, which is your health. So you can take more hits. Um, in Sekiro, you can't really do that. Whereas in Bloodborne, you can choose a sort of character progression path 
that allows the game to sort of have a more dialed down difficulty just by virtue of the fact that you're not dying in one hit anymore. Um, in Sekiro, you really do have to learn to play the combat. Um, I mean, you can only up your vitality, as far as I know, by putting together prayer bead strings, and you can only get those by defeating enemies, bosses specifically, usually, or finding them in the environment. But they're very rare. So, you know, you you have to, in order to become stronger, you literally have to defeat <laughs> certain enemies and in in very specific, crucial ways that are necessary for progression in the game. Yeah, just a lot more streamlined, sorry, and um, explicit, I think, as Alex was saying. Um, everything's good for you. Um, it's just a, it's a lot more like traditional game where you, you've got all these skill trees and things, you know. It's never been the case in any from games. Um, if, it, if it was Dark Souls, you'd have to probably find the prosthetic arm yourself. <laughs> just just for just for comparison's sake. Um because thinking back to Dark Souls, a lot of a lot of the um materials uh, were embers. So you had to find these different embers, um, which were in really most of them were in really obscure locations. Pretty crazy shit to find them. Uh, you know, the the main items or the main tools that you need, I think, are are fairly as well, but I think that was more streamlined as well. As user-friendly as Sekiro is, I feel like I read a lot of things that said, oh, this is the most accessible of their games and the most um, approachable. And then maybe a week later, everyone's saying, sorry, it's actually the hardest of all of them when it comes down to like sparring with specific bosses. Um, And I feel like, you know, without the context of playing the other games, I I feel like, yeah, that, that sounds right. Like this, some of these bosses especially the end boss of Sekiro um, took so, so long for me to get Mm. through. Um, And I'm wondering how difficult does it seem to either of you um, having played the other games? Is it as much as it's trying to guide players in through it and and give them more of a heads up just when it comes to the raw sword to sword gameplay, combat encounters, um, how much less or more difficult is it by comparison and why? It's difficult, maybe. Yeah, mechanically, um, the hardest. Yeah, mechanically, it's, it's certainly really, really difficult. Yeah, there's just more to like draw from. Um, you know, you you not only have the ability to dodge like you do in Bloodborne and block like you do in Dark Souls, but you also have the ability to jump, which you don't really have in Bloodborne. Um, you can like use jumping attacks, but it's not quite the same thing. You have to run to jump. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You kind of can like yeah. sprint. Yeah, it's just like other. I do that in combat unless you're like running off a ledge and then jumping and then somehow landing a death from above attack or something. But yeah, that's um, true. You you're not gonna yeah. Sekiro's so many different things to manage in in any given fight. E- even with it being telegraphed, it's still difficult. They they have um, various different. Um, the attacks, sorry, the per- is it perilous attacks? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, With the red kanji. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like, yeah. Is it? Oh, is it going to be a thrust? Oh shit! I misread that. So I've like jumped into it and been <laughs> slaughtered, or, um, or so it's a sweep attack this time, and like you got to jump. So yeah, and then all the blocking and 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 it's this. In in like Dark Souls and stuff, it was very easy to abuse the block or parry mechanic, like got the timing down 
granted every enemy had different timings but once you got down you just like parry or like parry the world kind of thing uh, <laughs> <laughs> just like parry everything like it just became really easy um whereas the the timing um it's like you have to like continue parry you have to parry the whole the whole fight in different timings and stuff it's it's not like just tied to like one one kind of like yeah i've parried and i get the big success noise uh-huh. and then a repost you know yeah so yeah that's accurate different. i mean i think just also having the um verticality to the combat is just adds a whole mm. different depth to it like the fact that you can jump over enemies and jump on enemies and grappling hook around the arenas um there's yeah. a lot of resource management with the you know in, in bloodborne you had quicksilver bullets so i guess it's kind of similar that spirit emblems but in sekiro you you know can switch between prosthetics on the fly in bloodborne you can't do that. I think that that was one thing that really shocked me was the the fact that you can actually pause in combat in Sekiro. Like in Bloodborne, you cannot do that. If you wanted to switch a weapon or an armor set, you better ha- you better have at least like fifty yards between you and any enemies because <laughs> you have to like scroll through your inventory yeah. in, mm-hmm. in a fevered pace. Um, and there's a I think Sekiro has a very tempo based combat to it where well yeah it's it's almost like music you know like there's I was fighting the centipede giraffe last night, and you know, I remember when you were fighting that boss, Andy. The sort of like slash, 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 yep. slash, slash, slash. You know, it's like you kind of have to get that yeah that rhythm down. And yeah, it's like the bosses sometimes have odd time signatures. It it really the game. If I could sum up the game in one word, it would be discipline, and I feel like that's what made me deal with it. Uh, because for me, it reminded me just a lot of having to learn a song or figure out a song and then repeat all those uh, different movements and mm. know that, oh, when I get to this one point, this one moment or this one verse or measure always trips me up and I have to like be careful to like not go too fast or not go too slow or like, and that if you mess it up, you mess it up. It's like a pretty, it's sort of like an objective failure, but also knowing how to recover and turn the tide in your favor uh, is, is a really great part of it. There was, um, there's actually a quote, actually, one of the things that you you jotted down here, Alex, that li- lines up pretty nicely with what you're just talking about from the, uh, the Game Informer interview with Miyazaki that uh, just on the origination of the game. And it's uh, what he says here is that uh, the genesis for Sekiro Shadows Die Twice came from two ideas we had for a game. The first was we wanted to enjoy the multi-layered maps we've come to create from another perspective, as well as move through them with greater freedom, both laterally and vertically. The second was that we wanted to create a more ferocious, more dynamic battle system filled with tension and strategy. So I think that kind of pairs nicely with what you were talking about, about being able to like jump on enemies and jump through the level to get away from enemies. It's, uh, it, it is pretty free roaming in that way. You can kind of fly around. Yeah, goal achieved, Miyazaki. Goal achieved. Yeah. Gore job. Yeah, gore job. Hesitation is defeat. <laughs> I lo- yeah, I love my getting favorite, those. My favorite uh, line. <laughs> Yeah, I liked when I missed my first chance to get your uh, get your tape mono, and uh, that was your response to me. <laughs> that was so good. I got me, yeah, I got me cracking up. Uh, yeah, but uh, oh, yeah, yeah, no, that was that was pretty good for me. Yeah, <laughs> um, um, yeah. Just to follow up from um, follow on from what you were saying, just the the, the beats and the, the musicality to, it. and yeah, it's a it's a lot more akin to like a fighting game. Totally, definitely yeah. compared to compared to someone like the, the, the souls games i feel like this yeah the souls games you could really abuse the um iframes especially dark souls 3 it was pretty ridiculous i mean it, it really became just a 
time your rolls game, whereas I feel it's a lot more nuanced than Sekiro. Yeah, it's time your blocks, but it's time your jumps, it's time time your sidestep, you know, time your attacks. Massive went to you know, there's a lot more to it. In terms of specific um encounters. The the first drunkard guy, what was his name again? The guy outside the Harada estate? Yeah, the yeah, in the Harada estate. I was just like completely raging at that point. I really was <laughs> like, How is this possible? Uh, honestly, I was like, how is it? I had my sister around, like, who's like, a few years younger, and um, my partner was watching as well. Like, absolutely raging. Yeah, I was like, this, I was, this I was area like... is bullshit. There's, there's yeah. too many enemies. <laughs> the, the run, this run back, like, I have to go along the rooftops. How did you eventually uh, end up doing it? Did you stealth a lot of the enemies away? Did you, like, stealth well, That's flip? the thing. Yeah, that, that's the, the kind of, the kind of secret user-friendliness of it in a way, you know, the, the, the kind of tactics that are not too apparent to begin with. Just run along the rooftops to avoid all the enemies, get down to the, mm. the, the end and then run through the, the water so I didn't have to fight any of those dudes. Didn't that boss give you a lot of problems too, Alex? Weren't you like start, moved on from him yeah. for a while? Yeah, that boss, but more so even the second... I, I reached the second version of him too early, I found out, and he that second version really threw me for a loop i don't know what it is about that guy maybe it's just the fact that like every single hit takes away like seven like three-fourths of your life and you're forced to heal yeah um and you just run out of gourd seeds like incredibly fast and just made me rage quit like andy had the pleasure of watching me stream that night and <laughs> feeling the fear the full force of my wrath oh, it was rough it was rough <laughs> Uh, that, that's the joy you know that, that's the joy of these games once, once you finally do it you know it's yeah uh, <laughs> the, that, the that release yeah the sweet yeah, release it, there's actually a there's a little bit from uh, vice.com that I wanted to share exactly on that in an article called Sekiro transforms the Dark Souls formula into something new and risky it's by Austin Walker it says um, even when you're in complete control of a fight you face the sound of steel hitting steel the sight of blades clashing, and if you slip up, you may die on the spot. Every new enemy type is a snarling, fang-filled puzzle. Do you need to land low damage attacks to their vitality so that posture damage will stack up? Or should you focus on withstanding an endless series of blows? Or should you be looking into your bag of tricks for a special technique? The result is a game where no longer success looks like slicing away at the monster's ankles while they swing haplessly at the space you used to be in. Instead, success in Sekiro feels like opening a stuck jar lid or like winning a game of tug of war. Resistance builds tension until finally the pressure gives way and you find relief. That's definitely uh, one of the big takeaways from this game is just that feeling of like euphoria and when you finally gotten through a boss and you've cracked it. Yeah, I think that really, in terms of like favorite bosses so far, I think that really clicked for me on Genichiro, like Mono and I were talking about a little bit um, before, just that the gameplay in that fight seems very fair and his his uh, or his moveset seems very like readable and understandable and uh, it evolves naturally throughout the gameplay. So in the first stage, you know, he might have a, he might follow up a certain combo with a thrust and then all of a sudden he switches it up, but it's a sweep attack. Um, but those both have like pretty familiar counters that you should know by now if you're that far in the game and have kind of tackled some of the mini bosses. And then the final stage is something that throws you totally for a loop and gives you something you've never seen before, but also, you know, provides you with a way to counter it in the form of a little nice little document they place in the world right before you fight the boss. Um, 
but yeah i mean I, I found that fight to be like one of the most enjoyable fights just because it really felt like the thesis of sekiro's combat was made manifest in it just that i found myself clashing swords with him more than i had any other mini boss or boss and it felt like such a back and forth dance um and i had to really be on my a game if anybody's looking for a thesis statement of Sekiro's combat and wants to kind of maybe look into buying the game, but they're not sure. I would say that boss fight is probably yeah. like one of the best ex examples of how combat in that game is meant to play. Yeah. Uh, Mono, you have to uh, head out here shortly. Um, before you go, uh, you know, again, first off, thanks for joining us for this. It's really cool to get to talk to you through this after, uh, you know, simply connecting over uh, the Resident Evil 2 save room theme. Um, all the way to having you on an episode, uh, especially with these from software games. Um, really appreciate you bringing all your depth of knowledge and, and experience with the games to the to the show. Um, is there anything else you you know wanted to close on? Wanted to say uh, that you haven't said already about uh, these games? I think it, it may be good to try and get some um, online play together at some point. Yeah, we should definitely do some Bloodborne co-op or something. Oh, That'd be so all right. I mean. Dark, Dark Souls remasters. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're really milking it, but because um, yeah. the, the online and stuff is meant to work uh, much more effectively than than the, than the original. It was it was quite hard to actually get co-op working in the original Dark Souls yeah. at the time. Um, it was really hit or miss. So yeah. So um, if um, if people want to see any of these uh, combat battles, by the way, that we're talking about, uh, I recorded quite a few of my successful attempts uh on some of these bosses and threw it up on our new twitch channel for the podcast which you can just find at twitch.tv um, slash screen looking um and mono uh while we're talking about other areas to find people where can people find you online like say twitter or anywhere else um where should they go yeah yeah just just uh yeah i mean twitter is the best place to find me uh, just mono memory it's all there. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Uh, I, have a, I have a community tab on YouTube as well, which I post stuff to as well. But um, yeah. All right. Well, sounds good. Well, thanks again for, for joining us. That's been great talking to you. I uh, hope you have a great rest of your evening. And uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch soon. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks, no, thanks a lot, guys. Man. So I have one final question for you Are you a descending carp or an ascending carp? <laughs> uh, today, descending. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. Have a good one, guys. Yeah, take care, right, man. See ya. Peace. So Alex and I are going to wrap things up by looking a little bit at the themes in Sekiro because... There's a lot of interesting ways in which the game uses its gameplay mechanics to uh, not only drive the player a little bit insane, but also um, if, if death is suddenly meaningless, uh, what it means if, uh, you know, people can get their hands on it and not just the player himself uh, or herself. So, um, yeah, this, this entire, the, the whole point of the combat in the game is that you can, uh, when you die, you have a choice to uh, resurrect or, or choose death um, and when you do that uh, when, you, when you do that act of resurrection it can take life from other people in the game 
Uh, we talked a little bit about this in our previous episode about like ludonarrative harmony and dissonance and how um, the act of playing the game uh, drives the narrative as much as the narrative, you know, drives, you know, the desire to play the game. So, and uh, it, this seemed like a, a theme and a concept that really resonated with you, Alex. Um, uh, what are your, some of your thoughts on that? And what are some of the themes that you've identified? Because this seems like another shared shared trait between all of From Software's games. Yeah, so um, definitely. I think they're, so the game sort of makes the statement early on even that immortality is something that is corruptive and not meant for man to possess. Um, Kuro and Wolf decide pretty early on. I mean, it's a choice you can make to sever uh, ties with immortality and sort of bring mm-hmm. an end to this idea, this concept or idea of immortality uh, in Ashina. And so, you know, on the flip side of that is sort of the idea that death is actually a gift or a blessing from the gods and that it's something that human beings naturally have to undergo or, or be aware of in order to live you know, meaningful lives. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, you know, the, the game's gameplay definitely syncs up with that. Um, you know, it, it punishes you for truly when you sort of truly die and resurrect. Um, that's when trap. Uh, and use like the sort of dragon's gift for resurrection. That's when dragon rot really starts to take effect and your immortality leeches the life force of others around you. So it it does kind of cur- bring a curse on the land and bring a sickness on the land. Some non-playable characters too, who if they get dragon rot through this, you'll get notifications. And in some cases you can't progress side quests. Like all those side quests we were talking about that these games are really known for. Um, you can't even do some of those. They lock you from that, from those those like peripheries of the of the world. If you continue to abuse this power, yeah. So your immortality actually brings an end to, as you know, closes options for you as a player. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, you're you're resurrecting in a way, kind of pun- punishes uh, punishes you as a player. And I think it's you know sort of going with the idea that death is um, is meaningful and and a blessing. Miyazaki has a quote from his interview with Telegraph UK where he said, death is technically a fail state. It shows you have messed up, but there aren't many games that just end things there. If you had a game that said, oops, you're dead, now switch off the game, it wouldn't be very successful. So you need to have something to to teach and be there to learn from. And we feel that death in video games is a positive experience. It's something we can learn from. It's something you can leave behind for others and something you can think about later on. It doesn't have to be all doom and gloom. We feel like it could be a positive. You know, and I think that death as a positive experience, <laughs> you could be, you could argue, I guess, maybe you don't feel like it's a positive experience in the moment when you're playing the game, but ultimately, you know, it is sort of the thing that allows you to learn from your mistakes and and fine and fine tune your craft. Um, you know, if, if if things weren't easy and you didn't die, you really wouldn't get much better at the game. Um, each death really teaches you, you know, where you messed up and improves your skill set going forward yeah it just encourages you to focus so acutely on the challenge that's right in front of you um even if there's like an optional boss or a mini boss that you don't have to fight just that that nagging sense that i could do this and for some reason i can't and sometimes it comes to just a mistake or error or you don't have the information you need so then you go out into the world to seek it or sometimes even dying and resurrecting and abusing that power can lock off that information that you so desperately need 
like say there's a merchant who's selling you pieces of information and that information leads you to a new weapon and that new weapon would make the enemy much 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 easier uh, to defeat it it sort of gets to this there's like this meta game that goes on then with all it has like this almost entire message that the whole series it's like as if the series was all these different franchises were leading up to the same sort of metaphor about like what it means to repeat uh repetition to refine uh, if this game is also a, a point of refinement for the studio from software um and just like what does it mean to to overcome uh, a challenge and and understand it yeah i think repetition plays out multi in many different ways throughout the game um even i'm only about halfway through the game but even in my limited mm-hmm. playthrough there's mention to uh you know a doctor character named dogan making the prosthetic tool over and over and over again until he finally refined it enough to be able to be used by shinobis and then it's ultimately passed down to you um the sculptor who you meet really early on he mentions that he's been carving the buddha over and over again in order to make one that looks happy and uh he can give us an offering but he just keeps making you know sort of deformed ones um there are different endings, which we might get into yeah. our dis- in our discussion a little bit later. But one of the one of them is sort of cyclical, where you take the place of a character in the game who you had interacted with previously, and ultimately, there's repetition in just as a player dying over and over again, and resurrecting in order to hone your skill set. Like I was just mentioning, um, these sort of repetitions you know, play out in the game. But Miyazaki himself has been quoted as saying, uh, if I didn't make a game that surpassed Dark Souls, that would be very sad, wouldn't it? And uh, I kind of wonder if maybe he himself is repeating, uh, is, is participating in that repetition through the games that he makes. They all sort of have similar structures. It's a similar activity, mm-hmm. but each new iteration sort of, I think maybe Miyazaki repeating the act of creating video games but re trying to strive for some form of perfection or mastery in his craft yeah that's my theory that's my thesis anyways yeah that's pretty subconscious that's a pretty uh pretty subconscious there um yeah i mean they they even you know just by way of trying to give meaning to the game over screen uh trying to give meaning to the act of initiating combat with an enemy i think these are things that over time have become throwaway elements of games where you just go into a room and clear it out of the enemies. You die, you reset, the The save points are all automatic. I think um, this game is really, uh, it's really masterful in re- revisiting concepts that, that games introduced a long time ago, but revisiting them in a way that's not just a game trope. Um, even the whole, you know, the repetition of things. I mean, the, the game in the story, the world is very much a repetition of, or it's a story about, you know, the, the, the cycle of violence. Uh, the cycle of life breaking the cycle of life and and how these different like zealots in the game who have acquired the ability to resurrect or get closer to to immortality find it is like oh now i can become truly enlightened i can become uh truly understanding of the world now that i understand this new facet of it and almost like gets it's almost like with uh you know something about cosmic horror and the lovecraftian stuff that bloodborne plays with i'm sure is like that idea of peering into the unknown you know, arguably Sekiro is, is, you know, revisiting that concept as well. So, um, it's, it's, it's a game that looking at it, I felt like I'm probably going to hate this. Um, I think it reminded me of what you said with Bloodborne where you're like the first, 
how many, however many hours you just couldn't stand it. And then it just clicked and it went <laughs> upward from there like a carp. Um, and I felt like, I felt like Sekiro was that exact same path for me. And now I have a hard time arguing why it wouldn't be in like my top 10, maybe top five list. Like seriously, it just is, it's a game that I know is going to stick with me for a very long time. Um, for all these reasons, it's, uh, it's, it, it takes a lot of familiar game conceits and, and turns them on their head and wants to say something about like why we play games, why we put ourselves through challenges. Um, so yeah, I think definitely that the repetition and the perfectionism aspect you mentioned and quoted there is, is right on point. Damn Skippy. Damn. Um, <laughs> there's one thing I wanted to mention at the end here about, um, you know, the thesis work I did when I was in art school, cause I think it yeah. really connected with me with this game is that, um, so I, you know, I went to the Cleveland Institute of Art and did the video game program there uh, several years ago. Um, and for my thesis, uh, I, I did a project I called Bloomed, which was the whole the whole idea of the game was, um, and the thesis was really that a big challenge that our professors gave us was always, well, how can you like truly make something, you know, that that is expressive and communicative and unique when a lot of the tools that you're being given are may, are being given to specifically make a certain kind of game, like whether it's a shooter or a 2D platformer, like it's not just like a pencil. It's not as basic as a brush and oil. It's a specific set of software that is, you know, they expect people to make certain kinds of experiences with them. And I thought, okay, well, that's an interesting challenge. And I thought, well, what if I used, um, you know, very familiar game mechanics to my benefit and and spun, spun them on their heads? Like think about all games of currency, games have life bars, games have used time, um, games... Um, want you to uh you know enter and exit states uh there's characters that that you know there's there's game over screens and stuff like that same things that Sekiro is playing with and so the idea of the game was uh to make a game that that a game that itself dies like the game shuts off or whatever you want to call it the game over screen is permanent permadeath is a thing that more and more games play with today at the time it was a it was a pretty um polarizing but interesting concept so I thought I'd take a crack at it my own way and you know, time is the currency in the game and you, you interact with this, basically this digital garden and, um, long story short, you, you can kind of slow down or speed up time or in some cases reverse it a little bit, but there's always a diminishing return the way the mechanics are set up. So it was like an installation and I hacked a Wii remote with a infrared sensor. So people could just walk up to it, interact and mess with these flowers on the screen. And by doing so they would speed up or slow down time stay in states of rain or or sunshine or cloud coverage and it would sort of simulate like okay like you're going to help the garden thrive or you're going to kill it quickly or have a short lifespan a long lifespan and by the end it would be like a communal thing where though all the people that came up to this thing could see like this this essentially this garden they all built together or killed together and just try <laughs> to get people to think about like how game mechanics can get you to meditate or take a meditative moment about what it means to like navigate time in, in a very simple way so ultimately it was a very simple um abstract game but um when i played this game Sekiro, it like reminded me so much of those same exact very base concepts of like what if we took that very familiar thing that all games have that has been part of the culture and has been part of the understanding and ubiquity of games and made it say something narratively so it was like super validating to see such a almost like like a triple a game play with that and not be afraid to push it and push players into an uncomfortable territory. Um, like at the end of the game, when you're uh, I'll in my rant here in a moment, but at the end of the game, when it's all <laughs> done, 
you think it's like gonna end and that's it and you like can restart but then you're left back in the world and there's this like hollow feeling of like all this destruction all this combat all this fighting and you got so good at it but like what do you do with it now and the fact that they put you back in that world to just like think about like look at the wake of like destruction in your path um yeah it it really like was unsettling but i didn't really know what it meant but i i it's i've been thinking about it basically ever since um and i think that kind of gets into what you were saying about like not being sure like putting the question back to the listener to each other of like what what does all the do all these endings mean and what is this game trying to actually say um yeah yeah, that's my rant it's really fitting it's fitting that yeah it's fitting that you that bloom reminds you of this game because you know they use the sakura pedal yeah as a symbol in the game for Um, resurrection and it's it's sort of a a symbol in japanese culture to represent that the idea that life is beautiful and tragically short Wow, that's uh, I didn't even notice that myself. That's amazing. Yeah, I love a small detail. Is like how they, as as dark and drab as this game is, it's still like much brighter and colorful than than Bloodborne and the other Dark Souls games, <laughs> um, Soulsborne games yeah. as they're called. Because like this game is so beautiful. I mean, it's just so rich that when they use color, oh, yeah. it pops. And I love how even though the color is there to remind you of the beauty of Japan, it is there to also communicate some gameplay elements like pink and the the petals always is about resurrection and life and vitality and blue is always the save points it's home um but yeah i mean any other like final thoughts on you want to you know rip into the endings a little bit and like what you think they mean i will give my very quick summation of the endings okay in terms of what i what i think they're getting at there are three patterns, two of which I can kind of make sense of and one of which I can't. Um, and I can only compare them to Bloodborne because that's the only other game that I've played of this series. But um, I think there's some significance there. And I'll try to try to not give away too many spoilers. But Well, we're in the end of territory. So. <laughs> yeah, general spoiler tag in case anybody cares. But all right. So in, the, in pattern one, which I like to call the, the path of self-sacrifice or continuing the cycle, in Bloodborne... The way you achieve this is you end up killing your mentor, Garman, in the hunter's dream. And he is sort of the the mentor that you've had throughout the game. And he is sort of fulfilling the role of shepherd to the hunters and guardian of the dream. And you kill him and you actually end up replacing him uh, as this immortal sort of trapped guardian. So you sort of give up your, give up your life in order to fulfill this mm-hmm. and fill this path and free him. In Sekiro... You end up killing your master, Kuro, in order to sever immortality. And there are two branches of this, but I'm just going to say the one where you kill him. Um, And you end up replacing your mentor, I guess, if you want to call it, who's kind of been there for you throughout the game, helping you and guiding you. The sculptor, who was a retired shinobi, and you now are the retired shinobi. Um, and you are now carving the Buddha like he is Mm -hmm. um, and are offering strength to any shinobis who arrive both of those kind of end with this sort of cyclical uh you basically become the person the new person uh the new mentor the new guide for anybody else coming coming down the path the second ending is what i would call the ending of the path of self-interest or breaking the cycle and in bloodborne what ends up happening is you consume all three umbilical cords of the great ones and you become a newly born great one so you basically take this forbidden knowledge and 
kind of bring it into yourself in order to ascend humanity and usher in a quote-unquote new age. And in Sekiro, what you end up doing is keeping immortality and mm. becoming an embodiment of wrath known as Shura. And it says uh, Sekiro goes on to uh, basically bring in a new age of slaughter to Japan. Wow. wow. <laughs> Bloodshed and slaughter. I, it's really dark. I think that's the ending um, uh, Mono actually got, or one of them, yeah, something like that. It's really dark. So yeah, that's that's what I would consider the self-interest in breaking the cycle. And then there's a third pattern, which I can't really make sense of. Basically, in Bloodborne, you allow Garamond to kill you in the Hunter's Dream, which sends you back to the waking world without any of your memories. Um, and so the cycle continues, but you are none the wiser for it. And, you know, eventually, well, I don't want that, to, that, we'll keep it at that. And then in yeah. Sekiro, you, uh, you work with the divine child to save your master Kuro and then set out westward to return the dragon's heritage to its owner. Mm. Um, so these endings don't really seem to correspond in too many ways as far as I can make sense of. If there are any listeners out there who would like to make who are fans of these games and would like to make sense of these this final pattern for me, I I can't quite seem to make sense of it yeah. myself. So. Yeah, when um when Mono and I first got together to kind of you know prep and uh, and discuss the game uh, after just beating it after I just beat it, we realized we both had very uh, diametrically opposed endings. Um, he he made a very he made the exact opposite decision that I did at a key point in the game, and that led him down a totally different branch. Um, and it seemed like it was more the path of destruction instead of the path of, path of uh, severing immortality. And so it was like a lot of story, a lot of um, it, whole environments you don't get to see or do get to see as a result. Um, pretty fascinating that they would, you know, really split things that much. But I love how they give player choice at that level too. It felt like the ending I had felt appropriate to the decisions I made, save for maybe one thing that happened where I thought, oh, this is definitely going to, this is definitely going to change the course of the game when I get to the end. Um, and it, it didn't trigger because you have to do things a certain way. But besides that point, it uh, it was it felt right. If it, you know, I had the the ending where um, I had to, uh, you know, I was protecting the prince and uh, had to sever mortality by uh, taking his life. And it's it's bittersweet, and it it was what both characters wanted. And it's like you know the one person who who had the source of all this power that people were corrupting decided to, you know, sacrifice themselves so that no one else could get it, but you. Uh, (laughs) So it's like, you know, now you have to live with this guilt and you're back at the beginning of the game. So this whole, like, like you said with Bloodborne, where you find a secret thing that loops back in on the beginning, Sekiro does that as well, even with its story. So it's just like super aware of what it's trying to do. Maybe still very hesitant to give away exactly what it means. Um, And with that, I think there's a, there's a quote that might be a poignant to end on about, um, what it means to withhold information from from the person and allow their imagination to thrive. You want to? Yeah, yeah. That? Miyazaki, though, you know, a big proponent of withholding lore from his uh, players. He he said, "I'm a fan of stories that require you to use a little bit of your imagination in order to really understand the whole thing." When I was young, I used to enjoy reading books that were too hard for me where I could only read maybe half the kanji and using my imagination to fill in the gaps, I wanted to see if I could bring that kind of experience to a video game where you use your imagination to bridge those gaps. And I feel like if anything, these games definitely require you to use your imagination, both in terms of 
solving problems in combat and also making sense of the beautiful messages that ultimately I think these games tell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like uh, I felt walking away from this like I learned a new language a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's frustrating when people try to speak it to you and you don't quite understand and you're trying to communicate interface and then you get a leg up and you learn one word or you learn one phrase and like you slowly build the vocabulary and by the end you're super fluent and I felt at the end of this game I just looked back thinking like I, I just wanted to go back into the world as much as I was punished <laughs> by it I really I really appreciated the journey uh, and the adventure it took me on and uh, you know wanted to keep yeah keep, now you, yeah now you can put on your resume that you're fluent in Shinobi and Carp yep mm-hmm yeah, well, well. good luck to you and the rest of Sekiro. I uh, can't wait to see how you do and how you, what decisions you make and how you uh, deal with the end boss because it is a doozy. Never played anything yeah. that hard in my life. <laughs> May the carps be kind. Yes, um, but until next time, uh, happy gaming and uh, happy gaming to you, Alex. Gord night, ladies and gentlemen. Gord night. Gord evening. Gord evening. <laughs> All right, right, shut this shit down. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in to episode 10 of Screen Looking. I'd like to extend that thanks as well to my co-host, Alex Koval, for his help and preparation in the making of today's episode, and of course, to our special guest, Mono Memory, for joining us and uh, contributing his music to the show over the last few episodes, including what you're hearing right now. Additional music in today's episode came from the official soundtrack to Sekiro Shadows Die Twice. Again, if you'd like to check out Mono Memory's work, you can find it on Bandcamp, and you can also follow them on Twitter. If you'd like to check us out online, you can find us at ScreenLooking on Twitter. You can also find us on Twitch if you just go to twitch.tv ScreenLooking. And if you enjoyed today's episode, we'd much appreciate you subscribing, leaving us a rating and or a review on wherever you love to listen to podcasts. And uh, of course, share it with a friend. Tell somebody else. I'm your host, Andrew Kuhar, signing off. And until next time, take care. Happy gaming. <laughs>